Okay, fellas, so here's a question for you. What's your favorite movie dance scene? Let's say, like, in the last 20 years or so. Okay, uh, Tom, you want to go first or you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. Uh, you, you're more of the dancing uh, it, it guy. You're into more of that stuff than me, so you, I feel like you'd have an interesting answer there. I wish I wish I could tell you I did, but I have the most basic bitch answer, well, which is... Which is that for me, the opening number or even the the little hilltop dance between the two of them in La La Land was so charming. I, I I remember seeing it and just sitting there in my seat, you know, another day of sun ends and I was just like, oh, we can do this again. It was so exciting. And, and I guess the only thing I could say close to that, if I have to give a little less of an obvious answer, but it's still kind of obvious, is it's the same thing when they did the, the musical number in Shape of Water. It was exciting. It was, I looked at it and was just like, oh, in the last 20 years, I, I feel like that's where it's got to go. I mean, you know, there's, there's, other classic dance scenes I love. We get so few of them, or if we do, they are dance-specific movies. You know, they're the step-up movies, or, or High Strung. <laughs> high Strung. Know, high Strung. First uh, and only time that'll be mentioned <laughs> in a podcast for the National Film Registry. You know what? I tell you what. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna look back. If we if 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 my non totally basic answer uh, would probably be Pony and Magic Mike. So there you go. It's got to be either La La Land or Pony and Magic Mike. What about okay, you, Tom? Um, well. It's going to be obvious, like the most obvious Tom answer once you hear it. The dance number when they're in those red outfits in Suspiria. That yep, like satanic, right. where it's cutting back and forth between them dancing and the girl in the basement. She breaks her leg and it's just this like insane, just satanic. It's just like evil. You're watching fucking evil come out through dance. And it's just like, yeah, watching that for the first time at Fantastic Fest was one of those just mind fuck moments of just like, oh, I... I've seen God, but I think it's also like the Lovecraft God and it doesn't actually care about us. And just the choreography is great. And, you know, Dakota Johnson, please step on me. Step on me like you stepped on Ellen. It's 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 why I, I, I remember that scene. I just remember thinking the weird thing is when I saw that for the first time, it just made me think because it's so obviously influenced by by Pina Bausch, uh, the choreographer. And I kept thinking how much I wish that I had gone to see Vim Vender's Pina documentary in, in 3D, which is one of the only times anyone will ever say, I wish I saw that in 3D, but, uh, but yeah, wish I'd seen that. Grab your umbrella and take a walk down the lane with a happy refrain for 1952's Singing in the Rain, here on You're Missing Out, with special guests Kyle Reed Haas and Jeremy Swanton. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Natale. I'm Tom Lorenzo. And this is You're Missing Out. We are talking Singing in the Rain, and we are joined by two good friends of ours, uh, former co-workers Kyle Reed Haas and Jeremy Swanton. Uh, they are musical theater writers. You might know them from Contact High, a new musical that had a... How, how, long, was the, how long was the run on that, guys? It was um, a month off-Broadway uh, last summer. Wow. Everything went crazy <laughs> with the world you got in you got in just under the wire so. oh yeah yeah we're so lucky we're so yeah we had our naysayers nice but i think we picked the right time yeah, back back when there was still a broadway yeah yeah broadway yeah you guys you guys got to you guys got to to play on the on the new york stage so uh eat shit music man revival you know you got that <laughs> uh, yeah there you yeah go. we actually uh we you know some people have accused us of uh bringing about the end but um, I don't know. I'm a glasses half full kind of person. So we are talking uh, Sing the Rain. When I, when I knew that this film was coming up, you guys uh, were the were the people I wanted on for this. You know, obviously we're we're, we're friends, and I've, I've dug what you guys 
do, and I'm excited to talk about this and, and hear it from your vantage point, because this is one of the quintessential MGM musicals, widely considered the the greatest movie musical of all time, and also in a fact that is only going to be interesting for you guys and me and not Tom. This is the first movie we've covered on the podcast that appears in the Great Movie Ride in uh, that used to be in Disney MGM Studios. So uh, I probably think about that ride once daily. And I'm uh, I'm still bitter about it. You know, everyone's complaining about Splash Mountain right now, but I don't really give a crap. I'm just still bitter about the great movie. It was ride. a beautiful. It was a, it was a beautiful ride that featured uh, most of your favorite films and at least two that no one gives a crap about. It's always one of those weird things when you're riding through and you're like, no one remembers Footlight Parade. Why are we doing this? But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I'm excited to talk about this. I love uh, this, this film, but but let's talk about why the National Film Registry loved it. This is what they had to say about uh, why they inducted it in their inaugural class. This rollicking musical satire of Hollywood in the 1920s, when film transitioned from silent to sound, features outstanding performances by Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, Gene Hagen, and Gene Kelly, who co-directed the film with Stanley Donnan. Don Lockwood, Kelly, is the reigning king of silent movies, and his regular co-star Lena Lamont, Hagen, while beautiful, is dumb but manipulative. When Don becomes interested in fresh-faced studio singer Kathy Selden, Reynolds, Lena has her fired. When talkies take off, Don and Lena's stardom appears to be over as audiences laugh at Lena's shrill voice for the first time. Don's friend and creative partner Cosmo, O'Connor, comes up with the brilliant idea of using Kathy to dub Lena's voice. Now considered one of the great movie musicals ever filmed, it's filled with memorable songs, lavish routines, and Kelly's fabulous song and dance number performed in the rain. Now, we've done a couple of these episodes, and normally the registry's entry is some thoughtful explanation of why the film matters. It seems like for this one, they just gave a plot synopsis. Right. <laughs> so that's that's a bit weird. Bit of a short change on that one. Right. Kind of gives us more room to have our own thoughts, though. That's true. That's true. Was this either of your guys' first time seeing this film? Or have no, you seen it before? Man. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But Tom, this was your first viewing, right? Uh, yeah, this was my first time. Always been meaning oh. to catch it because of its uh, stance in the canon. But, uh, you know, too busy watching, you know, fucking Friday the 13th again. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got our first and second of the of the podcast already. First and second F word right out the gate for this for this G-rated musical. I got this bit. I got the big fucking idiot Jason tattooed on my arm, so I got to watch him all the time. I mean, come on. What, what what are we doing here? That's okay. I hear that Kyle has Gene Kelly tattooed on on his right. Oh, Kyle is, yeah, 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 yeah. My right, my right uh, ass cheek. Yeah, you have you have. Well, that's that's how you two met. Is you have Gene Kelly and Jeremy has Fred Astaire, and so. Yeah. It was very competitive at first. Yes. Yeah, but but we... Oh, there's an umbrella joke in there that we shouldn't touch. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, I thought that. Didn't say it. Yeah. But, I didn't know where the line was. I didn't know where the line was. Yeah. We're still new to this. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is widely considered one of the quintessential movie musicals. Arthur Freed was one of the producers of it. He, uh, you know, headed a, a, a musical department over at MGM, and, and this is considered the crown jewel of the Freed division. At this point, nobody really talks about Arthur Freed anymore after he... He was uh, Me Too'd well before there was Me Tooing. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, Arthur Freed exposed himself to a 12 year old Shirley Temple. But uh, as far as I know. Oh, you know, that old chest. Yeah. But as far as I know, uh, nothing that problematic uh, happened with Stanley Donnan or Gene Kelly, except for the fact that Gene Kelly was a 
wild perfectionist and apparently not very friendly on set, which means today he'd have a daytime talk show. Oh, that's, yeah. I, um, I've always gotten, like, asshole vibes from him. Even as a child, I, you know, go, something's off about this guy. I know you're supposed to fall in love with him and his charming smile and twinkling eyes in the opening sequence, but I was never much of a fan. One thing I appreciate, because I watched, before I did my rewatch of this, it's interesting, because Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly co-directed a number of things together. And in 1949, they did On the Town, uh, which I don't know if anybody here has seen On the Town. Um, I have seen On the Town. Yeah, you guys, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know it. It's the, it's, you know, Frank Sinatra, Gene Kelly, and the other guy going, you know, doing New York, New York. Back when all a musical needed as a plot was, we're sailors and we're horny. <laughs> but so they made that together. And then after that, Kelly went on to make An American in Paris with Vincent Minnelli. And uh, Donnan made a movie called Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire. And then uh, the two of them made a, another film, a, a forgotten film. And then uh, Kelly and Donnan made Singing in the Rain. The the reason I bring that up is it's obviously Astaire and Kelly have been compared for a very long time. Uh, they were the two major musical stars. Uh, but Astaire is, of course, very stiff and polished and professional. And Kelly was very wild. The other thing I thought was interesting uh, to talk to your point, Kyle, about not buying into his charm is Astaire had to be, you watch the movies, Astaire is the good guy, right? You know, um, Royal Wedding, it's about, you know, his sister in, in this love triangle, but he's just like a, a good guy who just wants to put on a show. And from the start of Singing in the Rain, Kelly's character is, he's he's playing the character as a prick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's 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 doing all that shtick about how, you know, how highbrow he is when really, you know, they show you he was lowbrow. And then, yeah, and then gets in the, when he lands in the car with Debbie Reynolds, as soon as she says she recognizes him, he's ready to, uh, you know, as in his own character's words, molest her. So I thought it, I thought that was interesting when you raised the point of not being charmed and that, that there is something to the fact that in this movie, especially he is at the start playing kind of a, kind of a dick. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the you know they there's this whole like uh, thing they do in that that first sequence where the comedy is supposed to be, be the irony of you know he's saying like dignity is my motto and the whole story he's telling the crowd is a lie. I think the first the first time I watched this movie was actually when I was a teenager and I, I expected there there to be more of a, a repercussion like maybe the lesson his character would learn was uh, authenticity or something. And although although that that isn't what ends up happening in the story, I do think that there is this theme of, you know, what's going on behind the curtain quite literally by the end of the movie is what they are addressing with this story. And um, to answer the question, why has this endured? This is what what Jeremy, I kind of said, uh, because we we saw that 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 was sort of what we were going to be highlighting. Um, here today, I turned to Jeremy toward the end of the movie and I said, I think what has made this film endure is that although it's still kind of got those musical numbers that don't go anywhere and, um, you know, can can get slow for modern audiences, I do think that the fact that they were starting to acknowledge the people behind the scenes that don't get credit in Kathy, you know, she's our, she's our female romantic lead and she's the one behind the scenes, um, you know, not getting credit for her work and the climax of the story is her finally getting the recognition she deserves. I think that's really what has made the story endure for people. Um, I don't know. That's my opinion. I think it's interesting. It's also um, the story of Don is interesting because 
you know, who's putting on this show and he's, he's kind of a dick in the beginning. And I think it's in relation to, he's not following what he always wanted to do, which is music. And um, yeah, so he, I think he's such a dick at the beginning because he, one of my favorite quotes or ideas is unused creativity is malignant, you know, and he's clearly wanted to dance interesting this whole entire time but um has become this hollywood star and feels like he has to deny that from himself so when he meets um debbie reynolds character he starts to see this part of himself that um he had repressed for so long um and it culminates in him singing in the rain it's a really interesting interpretation because she does you know she she you know part part of her like you know her self-defense as he's uh making his move on her is to sort of make fun of him for being a film star because she's like, well, you're not really an actor. You're right. not really in the theater. He does take deep offense to that. Later on at the party, he says something uh, to Cosmo about like, oh, am I um, am I just like a, you know, a hack or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then Cosmo says that thing that she says, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. He gets really defensive and that's weeks later. Right. So that that is an interesting, I've never really interpreted the movie as having that much depth, but that is a really compelling interpretation of what's going on with this character. Well, and of course, you also have the element with this, uh, and it's certainly not the only film to explore this moment, um, but you have the, the element, of course, of the transition from, from silent to sound and what that right. did. Yeah. And I think that what's fascinating about this, and there's other films that have done it, um, if, if anybody, uh, what'd you say? Like Sunset Boulevard or... Well, some, which we... We re- the artist is what I was going to bring up because that's very much the it's it's the same journey, but of course, the you know two movies tackling the same topic, but one is a Technicolor musical and the other is a, a black and white silent. But what I think is interesting about the way that Singing in the Rain does it, as opposed to you mentioned Sunset Boulevard, we actually uh, did that recently on our show. Uh, uh, Philip Bisco, a screenwriter, came on and talked about it from that point of view. The Singing in the Rain, Sunset Boulevard is of course a, a kind of a, a bit of a noir. It's, it's black and white. It's it's about the tragedy of it. And Singing of the Rain is a comedy, but it is still fairly biting in the way that it yeah. not only criticizes Hollywood, but seems to sort of paint a, uh, you know, when you think about Jean Renoir's rules of the game and kind of pointing out how silly aristocratic society had become about itself right before World War II tears it all down. There's something about watching these people celebrate the way that we're now all talking about how absurd it was that only, you know, only a few weeks before the pandemic, people were eating literal gold on food. And now, you know, the economy's collapsed and everything's gone to shit. There is something about watching how absurdly full of itself Hollywood had gotten and the silent picture industry had gotten and then watch Watching all of that collapse in the wake of the jazz singer and, and subsequently the, you know, the integration right. of sound in movies. Yeah. And the way, the way they, you know, in their, in their, uh, 1950s Hollywood movie way, they, they cover the whole coming up with dubbing for the musical movie. And, uh, you know, Cosmo comes up with it at 3am while they're drinking milk. But, um, it's like, uh, it's, you know, it's their, their fun way of sort of, showing the public what it was like behind the scenes. And as we all know, Hollywood does have this obsession with self-referential, uh, you know, meta um, movies um, that, that go into their industry. You know, Hollywood has always been self-indulgent, but the, the you know, it's, there's always been this love of movies about movies. And um, I think that this is something I was thinking about last night as we were rewatching the movie was uh, the, 
there there is sort of like you said an ominous vibe you get at the party where they're watching the first um movie i mean obviously they're terrified because that isn't the same art form that that they're all working on and the movie kind of glosses over it after that like you know it's still like a lighthearted um musical comedy but it it does you you can you get the sense from watching it because who's making this movie who's who's writing well Condon and Green were writing this movie but uh who's producing it you know it's it's Hollywood is making this Hollywood film so that's that's their own feelings of um you know they were all alive and witnessed that transition um so they're they're all remembering um had that very real I think terror that that the that industry felt that the big stars wouldn't be relevant anymore but um maybe you know, as you see in Sunset Boulevard, that that was a very disturbing, um, if, well, retrospectively, it's a very disturbing culture. You know, the, the the stars were glorified as gods and goddesses. And it's, yeah, so maybe it was good that that died or was at least uh, put in its place by the talkies. Thank you for, for pulling in Comden Green on that, by the way. I wanted to make sure they, they came up because that's not, you know, people... We'll often talk about the Stanley Don and Gene Kelly partnership, but the fact that that was it was Betty Comden and, and Adolph Green, right? Is well, they, yeah, they I'm created gonna... they created the Broadway show on the town, um, and and they collaborated on the film with Arthur Freed, and he had them rip out a bunch of Bernstein's music from the Broadway show because he didn't like Bernstein. Um, he brought in his own composer, so I think he went back to them for Singing in the Rain because they. They had all, including um, Gene Kelly, they'd all collaborated together once before. And they also, I'm trying to think, they had, uh, what, was the, what was the other, Wonderful Town is their other one, right? Am I mistaken that that was the, that was them, right? So. Is it? Let me, Are look. am I wrong? I, you may not be yes. wrong. Yes, I looked it up. Yes, 1953. So the year after Singing in the Rain, they also have uh, Wonderful Town open on Broadway, which is a, a, kind of a similar vibe to On the Town, I think, to a degree. Anyway. Yeah. It's really. I mean, good. they're that's both where... they're both about towns, so right, you know. yeah. right. <laughs> Just gonna say, it's got Wonderful Town has a very uh, memorable score. One thing that I was gonna say, and this might be a little bit of a side side note here, but I one of the things I love about the the Hollywood musical industry is that it's a little less stingy than the Broadway musical theater industry about what your role is on a project. Because Condon and Green were performers. And they were write, screenwriters. They were book writers on musicals. They wrote songs. You know, Arthur was a producer. Arthur Freed was a producer and a composer and a music supervisor on on the town. So the, I, I kind of, I get inspired by that as someone, I, I like to, you know, stick my toe in a bunch of different pools. So that was a weird metaphor for that. But um, Kyle, Kyle, I, Kyle, as 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 your friend, let me just say, please don't say I aspire to be like Arthur Freed and stick my after what we know about him. Just save yourself the trouble. Oh fuck! Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, that makes the umbrella thing seem pretty tame. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no. Um, not I don't aspire to be like Arthur, Arthur Freed. More along the lines of Compton and Green. I think that they they created this. Uh, it's like review troupe when they were younger in New York and they ended up getting a Hollywood movie out of it when they were younger, but it was apparent, if I remember correctly, not a success. Um, but they, I think they had always aspired to do Hollywood. So yay, they got everything they wanted. Lucky them. Another thing when you brought up and, and Tom, feel free to, to jump in at, at some point. I feel bad if we're, if we're talking over you getting into the, the weeds, but. Oh, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I love, 
I love listening to theater kids talk about their theater kid interests. <laughs> LOL. But I'm not being I'm not being sarcastic. I actually am enjoying the conversation, and I don't have all that. I'm the newbie yeah. here, so I don't have all that much to contribute, really. Besides, her first time yesterday. Yeah, but you know what's interesting? <laughs> we'll, we'll get into we'll get into this. I'll, I'll, we'll get into your journey with musicals for a sec, Tom, because it certainly has. Uh, you know, you certainly have gone on a journey with that. Because I think the rest of us, uh, and I don't mean to speak to you too much, kind of. How, did you guys grow up as as musical fans like your whole life? Was that something you came to yeah. later? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah we both I we both uh we met. That's how we met was when we were like teenagers. We were in Spring Awakening together. Um LOL. Who who, <laughs> who hang on, who who were you? Uh, now I want to know. Uh Melchior Morris. I was Melchior Jr. And I was Morris. Morris. Oh wow, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Such a dirty show, you know, to fall yeah. in love. Dirty, dirty you know, show. Like, it's like, you know, do you guys know Spring Awakening? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I saw yeah. Uh, I saw it twice I, when i saw it uh i think uh the leads the original cast had already gone i think hunter parish was playing the oh, yeah he's incredible he's incredible in that role yeah so i saw his ass it was great anyway um <laughs> did he have a tattoo uh, set, have a- yes yes he actually had fuck i can't think of a single other movie dancer i'm so mad i wanted to pull for that so bad damn it um, he was in weeds he was in Weeds. Uh, he was in Weeds, yeah. and then he did that Godspell revival. We're yeah, gonna... we saw, Jeremy and I have a freaky story about that. <laughs> we saw that production of Godspell the same night a year before we met. Really? And yeah, I'm, and I'm I, in the background of one of. Yeah, my dad took a random picture at intermission of like the set, and Kyle. I'm in, in the, background the background of this of photo. Is that this was a, a year, year before, before we met? met. Was, and we all we talked about Godspell like because it was such a it was a really cool revival. It was in the round, such a good production, and um, the cast was just on fire. Um, and it was so cool like seeing it. We both had very emotional experiences that night with the show. Um, but and we were in the same audience, and we just didn't know it yet, or we didn't know each other yet. So it that's fun. wild, and it's even weirder that Kyle is staring straight into the camera. Uh, <laughs> well, he's not staring straight into it's it. Like, it. No, it's like a still from The Grudge. You just look yeah. back and he's just staring yeah. in. Yep, and then my face slowly morphs into Pennywise the dancing. Queen. Yeah, <laughs> just like some that. some single white uh, theater kid shit. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that uh, is, he, he latched onto you a year ago, and he just said, "This I, is." The I think one. we can all we can all say, I, I believe that if you if you go to any kind of theater production in the city of New York, you know, Kyle Haas will find you there. Uh, yeah, because that, oh, that's, that's, that's happened to me as well. I should say this right now, but my last name is actually pronounced Haas, like ass. Okay. Or I'm the just, avocado, like where your tattoo of Gene Kelly is. Yep. Uh, okay, yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, I've I don't know. I think I got nervous and forgot to correct you at the beginning. That's because I was. Like, that's oh fine. my god, podcast. <laughs> don't, don't don't be nervous with him. He, he, you're not buying tickets from him. He won't bite you now. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did want to note about this because we were talking about why it's endured is I just uh, this morning I watched on the town and the the, the leap that that Don and, and Kelly take from On the Town to Singing in the Rain is remarkable in terms of just how sophisticated Singing in the Rain then looks. And I think the one thing that's interesting about this film and why I think it endured and why it matters so much is that you look at On the Town, that's 1949, and whenever they do these musical numbers, not only are they very obviously kind of like uh, the the old Cole Portery musical kind of thing where it's like, hey, let's stop and do a song. And they do a, a song that is clearly like tangentially related to the topic. And then, you know, and then they go on with the show. But 
on the town plays every song to the camera. The camera is on a tripod shooting a wide shot and it plays every song as though they're playing to an audience, you know, as though, and the camera, you know, there's no camera movement or anything like that. I mean, maybe there's a panning shot of somebody's walking, but otherwise it's to the camera. It is a musical performance that the camera is stationary filming. And with Singing in the Rain, you see that the musical numbers are happening and the film is shooting around them, you know, especially mm-hmm. the Singing in the Rain number. But, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. in... in in on the town, you know, if this was on the town, when they did Moses supposes, it would have been one wide shot of the speech therapist's office, and Gene and Donald O'Connor would have been tapping and looking yeah. directly into the lens. But, yeah. But this film recognizes that in these musical numbers, the the camera is not to be played to. The camera is meant to capture this as mm-hmm. though it was happening like any other part of the film. Of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, well, I think that you can uh consider the camera a dancer you know and um and someone who's on the floor with them at times uh, i certainly think that that's that this is one of the earlier signs of seeing that in in musical numbers there's a shot in um the broadway melody where he it's toward the end um i don't even remember i i can't even describe the shot anymore it's it's toward the end when he's when he's you know he's been sad because the gangster's yeah. girlfriend doesn't want him and then he sees the the, uh, the nerd that looks like when he was a nerd and mm-hmm. he's like yay we should dance there's a really cool shot and i don't remember exactly what it is but the camera like loops around the group with him and then joins him in the midst of the other dancers mm-hmm. and um that was a really bad way to describe it all i remember is i turned to jeremy and i was like that was a cool shot <laughs> um but that but yeah i think that uh this is a conversation that we have a lot um and i think that everyone in musical theater writing has about uh musical films um and how you how you could write for the screen versus writing for the stage um but also directors and producers and really everyone on the project needs to think about this too how can a stage show translate the screen uh, cuz there have been some really shitey musical movies because they didn't know what they were doing in terms of uh um, the medium of film. What do you mean? Um, like, you mean within the last five years or so? Uh, no, I'm not talking about uh, Cats or anything else. That I was, I was referring to specifically the last five years. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was um, it. If you want to talk about a, a bad movie musical, that's something you can rent. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, I mean, I could honestly, all the movies you're bringing up, I could go on and on about because, uh, I, for me, and I think Jer, I don't actually know, but from, from, I'll let Jeremy speak for himself. I don't know if this is yours, but my favorite, my favorite musical movie is Little Shop of Horrors. Um, but I, I prefer the director's cut. I love, I actually kind of hate the theatrical release, like don't watch it, but, um. It's great till the end. Right, right. It's just such an expertly done musical film because it's very much a movie. Um, and the changes that they made to the stage show were all essential in terms of translating it from the stage to the screen to make it the best possible movie. And, um, you know, West Side definitely did that as well for its, you know, for its time. I think that Singing in the Rain is absolutely that. I do, I, I mean, Singing in the Rain is, is a, is a, you know, they're trying to capture a feeling from those, those musical films from the, when the talkies first exploded and there were all those musical movies. So 
there there is this thing in Hollywood musicals where like the musical numbers don't further the story. There isn't a whole lot of drama right. and it can get really boring. Um, but and and I think that this this movie, you know, isn't immune to that, but it does it does play with the medium for its time. Right. It was very uh, forward thinking in terms of how they could push the boundaries of the two mediums. Going back to what you were saying, Mike, to just this idea of um, how Singing in the Rain compared to the musical films that came before it, I, I'm comparing that in my brain to how Rodgers and Hammerstein really revolutionized musical theater through the incorporation of dance and these ballet sequences, you know, and how Jerome the, Robbins. Drama, Jerome Robbins, yeah, came yeah. in and really helped further the story through the dance plots. That compared to um, the way... Uh, Broadway Melody is shot in this film. You know, it's this beautiful sequence of dance told only in a way that film can can tell that sequence and just it makes yeah. you feel so many different things. Yeah, that would and work so on the stage. It would work on the stage yeah. in the same way. And so it just really revolutionized uh and it's, dance. It's interesting movies. you it's interesting you mentioned Rogers and Hammerstein too, because I always think about I'm not the biggest uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein fan. I think, uh, Jeremy, the first time I mentioned that to you, you looked at me like I just walked <laughs> into a Catholic school and said, God is dead. Um, but I'm not the biggest <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein fan, but one of my favorite musical theater songs ever is the soliloquy from Carousel, because it's, I mean, you know, it's it's so perfect. I believe my copy of the movie of Carousel is still at Tom's place for like six years now. When I was like, "You should watch this. This is your vibe." That's but Tom's vibe. I I think I think a story about uh, a a low down blue collar guy who uh, just wants to do right by his pregnant gal, then gets killed and comes back from the grave to try and make things right. That's the kind of story I could get Tom on for. They also do like a ten minute dance number about like crabs. I'm so, not the uh, not the cra- I'm sorry. Um, Crabs? I'm sorry. Food. Do you mean this was a this was a real nice clam bake where mighty glad okay. you came? Come on. No, I'm talking about June is busting out all over. Oh, which I okay. Guess a different. Yeah. So we're you're yeah. talking about a different seafood based musical number. In, in yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but so with soliloquy what I love about soliloquy is the fact that it's not it is not a song that is necessarily you know uh, the the catches but it it conveys an emotion so well. It it lets you in on what this character is feeling in such a way that you could not do in dialogue. You could not do any other way than in that song. And with Singing in the Rain, what makes the titular sequence, the Singing in the Rain sequence, so exquisite to me is the fact that the song itself, Singing in the Rain, had been around for a long time. It, it appeared in a movie called Hollywood Review of 1929, but it shows up in a bunch of other films, Babes in Arms and The Old Dark House and, and a whole bunch of other films, The Babe Ruth Story. But the way that the film uses it here and the way that it shoots around it so perfectly captures that feeling of essentially that moment after you walk away from a goodnight kiss on a date with somebody you think is really special. Like, that's the feeling. Yeah. And nothing, yeah. nothing has ever captured that as well. No piece of writing ever could. No piece of of just just isolated filmmaking ever could. It's that moment is the feeling of he or she likes me, and you are you don't feel the rain. You know, you're just walking through. I, it's 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 such a perfect encapsulation of a feeling, and I don't think anyone has ever done it quite like that. It's interesting seeing like they tried to adapt it for the stage to this movie. Yeah, you know the movie. And it was, they were, when they were writing the film and um, developing it, 
they were trying to make you know a musical movie versus like making a musical that is a movie and i i think it's so funny like you know high school being like oh we can we can do the rain now <laughs> like we out of the rain for our stage yeah. you know what i mean? like it's just it's such our a concept. singing in the rain, our singing has, the rain, rain. has actual <laughs> rain and it just seems like such a like a different concept to me like it just doesn't seem like it would ever work in the same way there's just nothing like that that shot especially because it was the, you know the height of that medium the height of what film could do so well i think I it's know. i also think it's interesting because kelly as a dancer and as a choreographer really seems to understand what works on camera whereas you know with with somebody like fred astaire if fred astaire danced on stage or on camera or on fucking dancing with stars like you know with a million cameras moving around those dances are still gonna register you know it's just about the technique kelly here and also in you know in the year prior in an american in paris which is another gene kelly movie that they tried to adapt to the stage with i guess a little more success with kelly he really seems to understand how how his movements will be picked up by the camera and and to understand the dimensions of that. I mean, he was, you know, he does so many little, uh, you see it in this and he does so many little knee slides because he understands to me anyway, like he understands that if he slides toward the camera, it's going to feel for us like watching the train come in in the station by the Lumiere brothers. Like we're going to sit down and, and think that at any moment he's going to slide off the stage and hit us in the face, like fucking Bruce Springsteen at the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, so I think that that's something to his credit and why you can't translate. Really, I don't, I mean, look, I didn't see an American Paris when it ran on Broadway. I know it got a bunch of Tony nominations, which it mostly, I believe, lost to Fun Home. But um, it's a very different thing. Um, but Daddy, hey, Daddy, come here, okay? I need you. <laughs> we can't, we can't start singing. Then Tom will, Tom will just tap out. I think it will just get, <laughs> that's, that's the moment when he just mutes the mic and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um but but there is something about the fact that he it's he clearly understands and of course you know kelly was so influential uh that later um you know i i i adore uh jacques Demy, the french uh new wave director who made all those musicals i think i i i remember distinctly like shoving i believe the young girls of rochefort or umbrellas Schborg into jeremy's hands once we, like, have to yes, we, we, we really loved so good, yeah. But, yeah, and and Kelly, Gene Kelly shows up in Young Girls of Rushford, and and it's yeah. it's just because he clearly understands that the movie musical is different than the stage musical. That it's, it's a that it is mm. a sen it is an entirely different art form, you know. And yeah, and, right. And Busby Berkeley, obviously, before that, understood that. And I think most impressively, and this is where maybe Tom will dive in because it's it's a director he loves. Um, you know, obviously later talking about Kelly incorporating modern dance film uh, later, Bob Fosse clearly understands the difference between what works on stage and what works on film, because he obviously mm -hmm. mastered kind of both mediums in that way. Now, uh, Tom, that's that's kind of your entry point for for movie musicals to a degree, right? Is is you kind of discovering Fosse? I guess that's really kind. I mean, because I got into Fosse in college. Actually, after college, um, you know, I watched um, all that jazz and, you know, I'm sure I've seen music. I, you know, I know for sure I'd seen musicals before that, 
Um, and even now, I'm still not a musical guy. But, you know, Fosse was sort of like my way into kind of understanding it more, even if it's not so much like my thing. I, I It's kind of just like, okay, I get it. There are times where it could kind of be for me, which I mean, I've had these conversations with Mike plenty of times since we've known each since we met in college of that. It's not so much that music. I don't like musicals completely. It's just that so many times the stories being told are not stories I necessarily connect to. Yeah. Or even like uh, Kyle and Jeremy had mentioned before, like, you know, musicals in cinema, they tend to go for m- musical numbers and dance numbers that kind of just stop the movie dead in its track. Yeah. yeah. And that, and as a movie person and more specifically a story person, it always would be very frustrating for me to be like, Oh wow! Like this, sh- and you know, I'm I'm gonna get this out. Like I really did like this movie, but like Kyle said, this movie does have moments like that too, where I would just go, "Oh, great, another fucking musical number." Like I'm kind of interested in this story of this change from silent to sound, this this relationship between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds. Like I was more interested in that, and then it'd be like, "Oh, great, make make them laugh." Like right. now. Now, I will say on that note, Tom, when you mentioned that, however, tell me you don't kind of love how insane... My, one of my favorite things watching this, because I've watched it a lot, it was one of my favorites for a long time. Um, one of my favorite things about this is just how... You can talk about certain musical numbers stopping the movie and tracks, but I love that Gene Kelly, by sheer force of will, deliberately makes this movie stop in its tracks for an incredibly self-indulgent, long, modern dance sequence. <laughs> advances the plot in no way but i love it so much for the fact that it's clear you could cut that out doesn't make a difference means nothing yeah. it is the flimsiest way to get it in but i love that sequence so much and i i used to think i don't know why i got this twisted around in my head but as a kid i thought that this movie came first and because of that long, you know, Broadway melody sequence, because of that, you got An American in Paris, which is basically a whole movie of that, where the music, right. you know, the songs of An American in Paris, the singing takes a backseat to the dance in every moment. But in fact, it's the opposite way around. And it makes me kind of wonder if that was a thing where Kelly, who was so committed to putting modern dance on the screen and introducing audiences to modern dance. It makes me wonder if that was something that he just kind of said, okay, I'll do the tap. I'll do the formal crap you want me to do, but then you've got to give me this chunk of time where I kind of just get to do whatever I want, where he gets kind of like a a blank check in the middle of the movie. You know, I would, I don't know much about this sort of segment of cinema history or Broadway, all this sort of like this dancing, this, this element of this stuff. But one of uh, I would have to go ahead and say, yeah, I kind of think it was a, an actual like a choice he made, um, because what makes this movie and its moments where it stops dead in its track work better for me than other movies that would do stuff like that. And also one of the reasons why I think this movie has lasted so long is, is that it's very smart and very meta in very many ways. So it almost feels like the movie is kind of winking at you by having them make a movie where by sheer force of the fact that this is a movie that was made to not be a musical is now being changed to be a musical in the flimsiest of ways of them kind of needling you and being like, yeah, we know you're just here for the song and the dancing and, you know, and we're going to have a little fun with it. And we're all having fun with this, right? We're all here. You, you, you guys remember silent movies. They, you know, now we're here and we're doing this whole thing. You know, there's a very smart 
meta commentary running through this movie that I, I would I would have to say, yeah, I think Gene Kelly was definitely making a choice by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. When when you talk about the musical theater history, um, that also then plays into when they when they started making talkies and then musical films very quickly after that. Um, well, actually, the jazz singer, I guess, is both. Yeah, it is. Um, it is a full on musical as well as yeah. You know, being the first talking picture. So, so also, it, yeah. There's this history of, yeah, also, yeah. Um, there's this history of uh, trying to figure out what this medium is of like what, what has now become contemporary musical theater. And for show, um, for context, uh, this is something, cause I went, I went to a, an art school in high school for a time and we studied, I was in the musical theater department. So we studied musical theater history and, um, you know, kind of the 101 was talking about how this art film, our art form has had a slow um, development into, uh, into what it is today. So at, at the time that like Oklahoma first um, opened, the idea of having a ballet sequence further the story rather than interrupting the story was enough to make the show a smash hit because it was so exciting just to watch this um, watch the medium of dance, um, like get you from point A to point B in the character arcs and what was going on. And so while the, while the characters in you know Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals tend to be more naive and their problems tend to be problems that aren't as um, compelling now when you watch the show, like oh, am I gonna marry this man and be happy in this way, or am I gonna be marry this man and be happy with him? But it's it you know if you look at um what they're doing with the medium, which has now gotten us to um, the, these stories that are much more complex. And, and, you know, you look at what Sondheim did with the art form and the characters that he wrote songs for. And um, it's, it's been this progression into an art form that I, the, the art form I fell in love with, you know, being born in the nineties. Um, by that point, we had some really compelling musicals with some really compelling characters. And so it was, I, it was quite easy for me to fall in love with it. But I, I like, I, and I think, uh, my musical theater history teacher, uh, what he liked to do and what I like to do is sort of look back and celebrate the, the small triumphs in terms of how we made this an art form that is, that, that can be so compelling and nuanced now. And I think, uh, what you were saying about the, the meta, um, aspect of singing in the rain, the, the, uh, we're making a movie within a movie that is now going to be a musical. Um, it certainly allows for a story that does comment on some compelling things about the industry and has, has here's, song here, here's a point I want to, I want to raise that I think is interesting and it's, it's a side tangent, but since you guys are here, I want to address it. There are a lot of movie musicals that are about putting on a show or, or making a movie. I mean, Footlight Parade is about, uh, well, we got to put on live pre-shows before movies, which is a weird uh, thing. But, like, there's so many, you know, James Cagney, like, almost every musical he did seemed to be something about either putting on a show or putting on making a film. And a lot of, of movie musicals are about that and are popular because of it. And yet, I feel like, and tell me if I'm right, I feel like that's not really the case with musical theater in terms of, I don't really, I, I don't know why. I mean, there are cases, but like Follies was kind of not, was am I mistaken? But like Follies was kind of one of those things that people were a little, you know, eh, about in its day and it's been recognized now. But I don't think there's, is there a lot of 
successful kind of meta stage musicals? Not successful. I What I think that boils down to is just the, the difference of taste in the two different industries because mm-hmm. musical, musical film um, as an industry and musical theater as an industry started as very separate things. And now most of the musical movies we see are adaptations of stage shows, but it wasn't always like that. Um, right. were you say well, I w- I'm thinking about um, just the success of Smash as a TV show, even though it only ran for two seasons, and it has such a cult following now. But it, and it wasn't a success in the fact that like it got canceled. But you know, um, there's uh, they did the a reviewing of the the concert. What bombshell? Uh, right, that's the yes. yeah. Um, and then they announced afterwards that they were planning on turning it into um, a stage show. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes that they're making in that, like, what do I know? But um, is they're trying to make it that they're trying to make it of like, we're taking the TV show and we're turning that into the stage show. So they're going to do like, you know, Karen Cartwright is going to be a character and, you know, like the writers of like, they're, we're making the bombshell musical and like, it's the making of this, it's not bombshell, the stage show. And I just don't see that working because of what you're talking about right now. Just this idea of like Broadway doesn't want that in the same way that musical that movie musicals want either. I think it's adding another layer to well, you the reality too, right? No, with the TV show, I think because right. I I think that musicals about the making of the art form can be really good. Like right. merrily like we were along, or Kiss Me Kate, you know, or, yeah, Kiss Me Kate was a hit. You know, but um, so there are. But I think with Smash, it's like we already have. We already that. have. Well, yeah. Give me like, bombshell. Give, give me bombshell. bombshell to right. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that was a tangent. Sorry. No, but but I, I just on my end of the movie side of things, um, I think movies kind of movie musicals, at least of recent, tend to do what you guys are saying because I think movies, movie makers, and they feel like they need to have an excuse for musical numbers to break out because um, as we're seeing every day with more and more frequency, people that watch movies are way too literal minded and need everything explained to them. There needs to be every sort of legitimate, everything needs to be explained. Everything needs to have a reason. You can't have any magical realism anymore. So like, you know, go, you know, we're watching, um, you know, we got singing in the rain here and it's got this structure of we're making a movie and we're turning that movie into a musical, but there are also points in the movie where they're just talking like the titular singing in the rain scene, where it just breaks out into a musical where I think kind of today, you know, audiences might just be like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Why is he singing? But you know, what's interesting. He's not, you know, what's interesting about that, Tom, is that I see your point and I agree with it to a degree. And there was a large movement, you know, especially when, when Chicago was a big hit in 2002. And everybody was praising Rob Marshall for the fact that he found a conceit that would allow the audience to buy the musical numbers, which was, you know, having all that stuff take place on like a vaudeville type stage and not in the moment. But and, and, and people have tried to do that since a lot of movie musicals since have tried to basically make Dude, every, the, you know, yeah. uh, even even I love the movie once, but the movie once like goes out of its way to, to make sure all the music's grounded in it, you know, and, and that <laughs> works. But what's interesting about that. What I was going to say was Rob Marshall didn't come up with that. That's that was from Cabaret. He just took the concept from Cabaret, and then everyone was like, "Oh my god, it's amazing!" Of course, but 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 what's interesting about that is is uh, Tom. You know, you're saying that oh, people need that explained to them, and and I think that Hollywood thinks that, and I think that the the film writers think that, but I don't know if 
audiences need that because no because in 20 i'm gonna say 2018 we had a movie musical come out that never explains why they sing also the music was not great and the script was not great and the greatest showman made an ungodly amount of money because there was an audience for it and you know what the weird thing is i know that it's probably coming i think it's coming to like disney plus at the end of the month i may watch it again not even because i liked it i did not like it when i saw it but there is that part of me that's like you know what yeah take me on this fucking like i was thrilled when moana or frozen were musicals again because i could just go all right take me on this right well well, i think it's interesting too that hollywood producers and the hollywood mindset is trying to take over broadway right now too like you need because it's making the broadway shows bad but then (laughs) (laughs) they're really there's they're few and far between when they're good these days like if they're approaching it from if they think that the audience needs that if it needs to be spoken to they need to be spoken to or thought of that way then that's going to affect the way that the broadway now i I think it's a matter of I think it's a matter of dramaturgy and writing. If you Singing in the Rain is basically a jukebox musical. It was Arthur Freed wanting to feature a bunch of songs, I believe, that he had written. And he, I believe, went to Compton and Green and said, said, Will you help me develop a story around my song? And um that happens. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of musical theater writing is going in this direction now with with trying to capture pop music. Which is, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, key change, chorus, where it's, it, it's gotta be kind of vague and not really further the plot because when you talk about a musical like Little Shop of Horrors and Howard Ashman, who, uh, you know, also did the work on Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and, um, some of the work on Aladdin. But the, the genius with, with him and with people like Lynn Manuel Miranda as well is that they know how to make an audience not even realize that it's a musical. Because the, the, the way the characters are articulating themselves, the way that the music, the, the songs are coming about is so natural and exciting. It's, it's the same thing as a musical score. When you're watch, when you're watching a movie that isn't a musical, if the score is good, it highlights, uh, like, like a John, a good John Williams score will highlight the emotional drama and you won't even notice that it's there where, or it'll set the tone. I think that in musical theater, the songs should do the same thing. You should be on the journey with the characters and not even noticing that it's a musical. And, um, that's our challenge. And Stephen Sondheim said in the, the, his book, Finishing the Hat, which was shaped who I became as a person, that you shouldn't, the, 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 the real trick to writing a musical isn't even knowing how to write good songs, but it's knowing where to put the songs so that the audience suspends their disbelief about them. And that's what we're missing, I think, from, from the stage and the screen musicals is that people, People don't know how to do that. Um, and the, well, the geniuses like Howard Ashman come along and then die of AIDS right away. And, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a shame that there aren't more uh, minds like that. You know, I think also a big problem when it comes to movies in this regard is that movie musicals tend to be um, pretty expensive. So these studios are just going to kind of hire whatever filmmakers, like just workmen guys that are just going to like, oh, yeah, we're just going to film it. We're going to kind of not really we're just going to do it and not put too much effort into it. So the it kind of ends up feeling a little stiff and it's not shot the way you want. You know, I know a lot of ma- complaints with this sort of thing is that when dance numbers break out, they kind of edit and shoot it to shit where you're not seeing bodies moving and it's not impressive and you're just like well what are we doing here which is why you know you 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 would wish that some of these more some more musical filmmakers like 
honestly, a Marty Scorsese, or I know Mike doesn't like the guy, but an Edgar Wright, whose filmmaking is so based upon the connection of the image and the music, which is why I know this might be heresy. I think it's kind of very exciting for me that if someone was going to redo West Side Story, I'm glad it's Steven Spielberg and not Tom fucking Hooper, you know? Yeah, yeah. and it's interesting you say that, Tom, because I think part of that, though, and part of what Spielberg, I hope, is going to do right is, and the name has just escaped me, but the choreographer that he hired for West Side Story. Oh, um, what's his name? Justin Peck. Justin Peck. Thank you. Justin Peck is not only a great choreographer, but he, I mean, I remember showing you video, Tom, of, of some, a thing he had shot just as an ad for the New York City Ballet. And I think that the thing with Spielberg was going to make that different. Because you mentioned Marty Scorsese. Well, Scorsese actually, he made a musical and it's... That's because cocaine is a hell of but, a drug. But no, so many of these 70s auteurs tried to make musicals, whether it's Brian De Palma oh, yeah. or Francis Ford Coppola, and they tried and they all failed. And I think part of the reason is that these studio brat auteurs think of themselves as the sole creative voice in that and why singing in the rain works in part is stanley donnan is a filmmaker and he's thinking about sure you know the visuals and that kind of stuff but he collaborated with gene kelly and gene kelly took the took the lead not only on choreographing these dances but saying here's the best shot to get this here's where you should be for this here's where you should be for that and i think that i hope because spielberg is especially now a collaborative director one has to hope that for this film he's having conversations with peck about okay where are you going and what is the best way for me what do you think is the best angle for me to shoot this what are you playing toward so i know how to capture this you know although well, i think i i i think you know we, we could diverge into this all day long. I think you just got to watch the beginning of Temple of Doom to know Steven Spielberg knows yeah. how to just film things. I'm sure he's going to listen to his choreographer. This is a, not a guy who's going to over edit and cut these these musical numbers to shit. I'm just saying, you know, I think it's a business thing nowadays of just if you're going to spend a hundred million dollars to on lavish sets, spend tons of time on, you got to spend a lot of days on these numbers. You're not going to do it in a day. Like it's a dialogue scene and you got over the shoulder, over the shoulder wide, you know, they're going to just hire some guy to get the job done and not really care about the musicality that has to come in from the actual medium you're trying to translate to screen. So let me ask you guys, uh, Kyle and Jeremy, like there's also a difference, I, I think, between how and, and I can't speak this as much as you can, how much input people like a choreographer or, uh, you know, a, 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 a writer has for a stage show as opposed to a film. Is it would you would you yeah. say there's there's more conversation um, well, or collaboration that way? Or? I think it really depends on on the artist and what they bring to the table. Like I, I was just going to mention Kenny Ortega, mm-hmm. too, and his work on um, Newsies and Hocus Pocus and then obviously High School Musical. But that that that's someone who I think did he direct he did he, he, I thought he, did he direct movies I don't remember if he I, I, High School Musical. But, um, I yeah. I was asking about Newsies. Newsies, I, uh, I think so. No. Let me see. Directed by Kenny Ortega. Yeah. Yeah. So it so okay. Obviously, he had a lot of input because he was also the director. But he he he's someone who really understood um you know he his background was music videos so he really understood dance on screen right. um i actually have reservations about justin peck because i because we he he choreographed the carousel revival and we felt that the choreography could have done more to further the story in that revival yeah. um but but yeah i think I think that are you are you going to be the first guest to start beef on our podcast? Are we going to have a 
<laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, to be clear, I, I, Justin, if you're listening, I think your work is great, and you're a, you're a, you seem like a charming fella to boot. Well, I know nothing about you, so I'm just going to watch this fight happen. <laughs> you can, uh, cut out, cut out the criticism if you think it might ruffle feathers. But... Be honest, I, well, I, I think I'm more interested in in terms of this West Side revival and kind of bringing it back to Singing in the Rain too. Was Dean Kelly was such a perfectionist about making sure that there weren't cutaway shots in a lot of these dance numbers. It was, you know, he deliberately knew exactly when they would cut away and made sure that every single choreographed move on the screen was perfect to the point where like they had to film 40 takes for just the end shot of good morning, <laughs> you know, yeah. like in Debbie Ryan saying that her feet are bleeding. Like I wonder um, specifically in today's environment, especially with actors equity. And I, I don't know how, as much about Screen Actors Guild, um, but just how kind of merciless directors will be in order to get what they want, you know, to the point of being dictators, you know, on set, you know, like, I don't know how um, much they're going to push to get the shot that they want and make it look like as perfect as Dean Kelly was being during the Do you mean because of, because of, because there's this culture now of like, uh, like rights for actors yeah, in and terms not of, abusing your actors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've wondered that too. Right. It's yeah, obviously it's, it's a necessary movement, but sometimes I think these movies were better because they were abusing yeah. reactors. <laughs> oh man, in the last five minutes, you guys are just doing yourselves so many favors on the things you're saying. Oh, I I <laughs> no, I understand what you're getting at. I just I just love the uh the clarification of like to be clear, I think that actors should be treated as people, but just you know. I, I do sometimes I do wonder if that that upset. I mean, even it's even a, something I wonder about, like Hitchcock or Kubrick. If sometimes their their obsession with, I mean, there's a difference between un, unnecessary right. cruelty, but the perfectionism and and what that does to an actor's schedule and what that does to their, uh, their mental what they're getting, yeah, right. their mental, what they're getting paid versus the the amount of the toll the product, it's taking right. on them. But sometimes it would lead to greater excellence in the movies. Not that it's worth uh, that, I think, for someone's well-being. All I could say uh, with in terms of West Side Story, I can't speak in terms of uh, In the Heights, just because I know how Spielberg works. I know that they probably had a lot, a lot of time before they even started shooting, just practicing these moves, just going over it, lots of rehearsals. So by the time they get to set, they're not abusing their fucking actors. And Spielberg, you know, has gotten to the point where he just now knows, okay, this is what we're going to do. I need you guys to know how to do it. We're going to shoot it. We're not shooting a hundred goddamn takes. Just, you know, we're going to get it till you get it, but just know what you're doing. So I don't know how the the filmmaker, what's the, what's this guy's name doing in the Heights? He did John Chu, yeah, right? Yeah, John Chu. He did, uh, that, this is cra Crazy Rich yeah, Asians cra and this, I think some of this, uh, Gem and the Holograms. I don't know his filmmaking style i don't even know if they have the budget the way spielberg would have to allow tons of rehearsal time i just i do understand where uh kyle and jeremy are coming from in the sense that you can't half-ass this shit um especially um to bring it to something i actually love in cinema which is not too dissimilar to what is going on in these kind of movies is action scenes which is all about you need a lot of rehearsal, and it's always good to see the action, to believe what you're seeing, and be impressed by it. And, you know, it's a little different now that you can't let John Landis kill your characters uh, while you're making the movie. But, like, I, I agree, and I, I think that it's part of, you know, there, there's something about 
it's weird because Hollywood loves the narrative of people working themselves to the bone. They love to say that, right. but then the movies right. don't always reflect that. The example I always go to is um, to, to take it back to, to Rob Marshall's Chicago, which I guess we're taking out to the woodshed today, but to take it back, uh, which is a movie I like, by the way, but I remember on the, on the morning show circuit, and especially during the awards push, they were really emphasizing that Richard Gere learned to tap dance for the movie right and they really push that but if you watch the uh the the sequence you know the sequence he's reading uh the diary and then tapping if you watch that sequence there are close-ups on the tap shoes real fucking wide shots where you can't even tell who's on stage and close-ups on richard Gere's face which if i'm watching this and i don't know anything i just assume well of course they're not going to get richard Gere to tap dance so they're using a double i'm used to this is how movies work but then when you tell me no he learned to tap dance i'm sitting there going but you didn't right. let me see that work you know if if what you're going to shoot is just something that could have been as tom put it half-assed then why put in the effort you know which is why you know i i think going back to singing in the rain and it, just like so impressive you know like it's it's like the best shots like the best possible way that you could get it and like making sure that it's that you know it's just such beautiful precision in terms of the dance well and and kelly kept that discipline throughout his life you know you mentioned kenny ortega before now you guys might know or not know that kenny ortega did work with gene kelly once Oh, really? Which movie? Oh, boys. Uh, it's about a place where nobody dared to go. A love that we came to know. Xanadu? The, yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> the oh my God. picture Xanadu. I believe it was one of the first, if not Kenny Ortega's first choreography job. I have no idea he was on Yes. That. He was hired as a choreographer. I remember because he's, he's on the special features of the Xanadu DVD. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was the choreographer on Xanadu, which, you know, the, the three leads of Xanadu, for those who don't know, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we'll be covering it on the podcast soon. I don't think it's in the National Film Registry because they don't let me vote. Uh, but it's, it's Olivia Newton-John, Michael Beck from the movie The Warriors, and then Gene Kelly. But you watch Xanadu and the one thing you have to say for Xanadu is that, at this point, fairly old man is giving it his all, even in this movie about roller skating like he's going all the hell out for it you know and especially you know i mean singing in the rain is widely considered his crowning achievement um and there is so much i mean the the amount of the, the various techniques on display i mean of course you have some fairly pure tap dancing in Moses Supposes. You have the big modern dance break in, in Broadway Melody. He's really, you know, he's, he's using pretty much every weapon in his arsenal. And of course, it's it's remarkable to watch in Moses Supposes that Donald O'Connor is able to keep up with him at all, which is a, quite a quite a testament to to O'Connor's uh, skill. But yeah. Sorry, I had to, I had to, once Kenny Ortega came up, I had to bring it around to, to Xanadu. No, I'm so glad. It's on our watch list right now, because uh, we, we just got the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> it was for like, like a, a dollar. For like two dollars at half price book. <laughs> so we've been, we've been listening to it. But we, it's, we've got the Broadway album with Carrie Butler doing her Olivia Newton-John impression, which is epic. And that was, oh my God, why am I, Cheyenne Jackson was in that too, right? The, the yeah, musical? Cheyenne yeah. Jackson, Mary Testa. Who else is in that? Yeah, it's uh, it's I'm I have an obsession with Carrie Butler. Uh, I think she's like the greatest thing to happen to musical theater, and I think it's a tragedy that she didn't have more to do in Beetlejuice and Mean Girls. And she wasn't she supposed to be in Xanadu originally, right? Wasn't um, oh my god, from Thirty Rock. Uh, I'm forgetting her name now. Uh, Jenna Krakowski. Jenna, Jenna, Jenna Krakowski was was at the original read for that, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, she. I don't. I don't know too much about this. The show. The Xanadu. I don't know too much about Xanadu, but uh, I uh, I 
I just love Carrie Butler. But I, Jane Krakowski is also an incredible. She was in Starlight Express, which is also roller skates. It's probably where they got the idea. Sorry, we went on a Xanadu tangent. Uh, my favorite thing, by the way, is I'm looking at most of the notes like from behind-the-scenes stuff I looked up, and they're all just about what a, what a taskmaster Gene Kelly was. To be clear, I love Gene Kelly. I loved this movie as a kid. I think it came from, for me, you know, I remember when the American Film Institute, the AFI, put out their list of the greatest movies, and I just like demanded my family take me to Blockbuster all the time to rent them. I watched St. Lorraine, thought it was incredible, watched it a thousand times, watched American Paris a thousand times. Actually led to me taking tap classes for, for a couple years which uh, is is more believable if you knew what I looked like then instead of now, where I resemble uh, the the dancing hippo from Fantasia. But at the time, I was I would like, pay money to see you fucking tap dance because I've seen you have to try to walk down a hallway with a drink tray and you look like you were walking through a minefield. Oh, okay, oh, okay. Oh. In fairness, Tom, in fairness, I was tap dancing at, before I had a terrible car accident that, that shattered my shoulders and wrists and knees. There was yeah, a different yeah, time. Okay. Always with the yeah, excuses this There's guy. a reason I hung up my shoes. Uh, but So I love Gene Kelly and it, it does feel kind of hard in a way... Uh, you know, of course you don't want to cheer on anybody doing something bad or, or abusive on set. But at the same time, yeah, it is kind of hard to... First off, you look at the results and you look at what a great movie it is and, and, and the fact that he was a perfectionist. And also, and I've said this, you know, uh, online sometimes, but it is kind of hard when you hear stories of uh, quote-unquote abusive behavior on sets and then you're like, oh, if you work in the service industry, this happens to you every day for much less money. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, he Fair. said he said that every third customer says that to you. And if you don't smile, your manager fires you like, you know, right. it becomes a little, right. a little harder. I do want to touch on Lena Lamont, uh, you know, the oh, yes. character of the film, because, of, of course, uh, that is one of the only two amazingly one of the only two Oscar nominations this movie got. Wow. This, this movie was let's let's touch on this real quick. We just did an episode on High Noon. This movie was uh, the same year, same Oscar year as High Noon. It did not get a Best Picture nomination. The nominees that year, I believe it was, you had High Noon, you had uh, John Huston's Moulin Rouge, which is not the 2001 uh, version. You had Ivanhoe, you had, I'm blanking on one right now, I, I can look it up, but the other one was The Greatest Show on Earth, which won, which is a Cecil B. DeMille circus movie that is uh, atrocious. And uh, if, yeah, Meanwhile, Saving the Rain only got two nominations. It won neither. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hagen as Lena Lamont, who lost to Gloria Graham in The Bad and the Beautiful, which uh, I have not seen The Bad and the Beautiful. Tom, you have, so you could probably speak to that a little bit. Uh, that's, uh, it's, 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 it's tough. I mean, honestly, it's a coin flip. I, I think, yeah, she, she deserved it, but also Gene Hagen deserved it. You know, it's kind of like you, you, you screwed if you do, you screwed if you don't. And the other category was nominated and was best scoring of a musical picture, which it also lost to a That's movie a called With a Song in My Heart. Well, maybe because the song, the almost every song in Singing in the Rain already existed. And, and a lot of them had been in movies before um, or songs eerily similar in the case of Make Him Laugh. So that might've been <laughs> because they, they felt like that would have been a, a bit of a, um, a steal or unfair I, don't know. I also my my other theory for its lack of Oscar success, despite it now being a classic, is the fact that that was, you know, that was the 25th Academy Awards, the, the awards for, for 1952, the 1951, the 24th Academy Awards and American in Paris wins Best Picture. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. So yeah. I, I wonder if it was a situation wins best picture, wins best story and screenplay. Uh, that had won best scoring of a musical picture the year before and art direction. It wins uh, cinematography, costumes. So I do think that part of that is, uh, and, and they did give Gene Kelly an honorary award for his choreography because they did not have a, a choreographer Oscar uh, at the time. So I, I do think that's part of what leads to uh, Singing in the Rain getting snubbed. I think it was a situation kind of like how there was, I mean, it ended up winning, but how there was trepidation around uh, Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind after Gladiator, where they're like, can we really double dip right. on this? And then there's Meryl Streep. They're just like, that's fine. Well, that that happens after a while, though. In fairness, there were there were stretches. It, it wasn't it, it wasn't until really until Meryl Streep's Devil Wears Prada, Mamma Mia year or years where the Academy kind of turns around and goes, "Oh, this is different." And then, you know, we we give her an Oscar for the truly terrible Iron Lady and nominate her for things like Into the Woods. Right. Um, um, Which it's it's interesting. I, before I we get into Gene Hagen, you mentioned Sondheim before and how he innovated, you know, in, in musicals. Can we note that has there been a good movie adaptation of a Sondheim yeah, so musical? I if, I would argue that Sweeney Todd is a good movie, um, okay. because I and and a, and a fair adaptation, but that I would argue that I I'm I mean, not I'm not disagreeing with you. I actually quite like Sweeney Todd, but I know that it's contentious. So. Yeah. Right. No, I Sondheim has said um that that's that's the only film adaptation of one of his musicals that he really likes. And um I I also really like um there's one other that I really like. Do you know what it is? I really yeah, well West Side cuz he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story, but I I really I really enjoy the the made for TV but Midler movie of Gypsy which he also only did the lyrics for and Julie Stein did the music. Um, Evening Primrose, uh, Evening Primrose really... too, which that's not really a movie. movie. There's another one I can't remember, and I'm not gonna waste our time trying to remember if it comes to, comes to me. Um, but yeah, I I think that most musical movies are bad. If I'm being honest, I think I if I if I'm being completely honest, I feel like it's it's less of the time that they really nail um, the the two med- combining the two mediums. Now, when you Especially, say that, do you mean? As in movies that are adaptations of stage musicals, or you're yeah, incorporating I, I movie mean, organically movie musicals as well. I mean adaptations, and and I think movie musicals, uh, a lot of them fall into the fall into obscurity and don't stand the test of time. Uh, clearly, Singing in the Rain is one that has, but I th- but I think that I, I was talking about adaptations. Mm-hmm. I feel like usually they just because they because it's the like I said the dramaturgy of. Um, you know, you you write a show. It's a well-oiled machine for the stage, and you've got to make changes to make it translate to the screen. And um, as we saw with Cats, that's something that that can be a bit of a struggle. Uh, <laughs> Why did that? Did did people not like that one? Oh, I love Cats. <laughs> I have the, I, don't know I have the Blu-ray sitting right here, so I'm I'm ready to rock and roll. But yeah, yeah. yeah of course, I, you got the Blu-ray. That you fucking sadist, you bastard. <laughs> Do you know why it's? Do you know why it's here? Because my significant other said this will not be in my apartment. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Um, but uh, but you wanted to talk about Gene Hagen, yes? Um, and uh, Lena Lamont. We we came up last night with the premise of Silent, the untold story of Lena Lamont, which is a musical we would like to work on. <laughs> um, uh, because she really is. It's actually. Rewatching it, I feel bad for her at times because she can't help that she has a weird voice, and um, they do constantly silence her. And 
what were you gonna say jeremy no i was just gonna say that like you you know if we if we did the wicked thing where it's like well maybe kathy was mean to her first and maybe uh i mean we already know john lockwood is a jerk so maybe that's why she was rude to him in that early shot uh you could make a compelling case for her being the unsung hero of this story. But I wonder if it's, you know, how do you feel about the way that she goes after Kathy Selden? I mean, that's clearly... Well, that's what I was saying. You could, you could if you did the wicked thing where mm-hmm. you, you do all, all this stuff, you didn't see all this context, you don't know. She, Kathy could have been, you know, we could write scenes where Kathy's, they, they meet earlier that night at the party where she jumps out of the cake and Kathy's... I mean, her, well, we already know Kathy doesn't like movie stars early on, right. or at least she says that she to puts get up the front. Yeah, she her, her, at least she puts up a front about how much how superior she is because she's a stage actress. So she could say the same stuff to to Lena. She, I don't know. It's not not that this happens within the world of Singing in the Rain, but if we wanted to do our own little, you know, this comment we made that was a joke that we're now taking very seriously. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> I feel like that's what happens with you guys a lot. So yeah, I don't know the line. I really don't know the difference between when i'm kidding and when i'm serious it's a very it's a problem wow it's a problem i'm working on it <laughs> tom what about you i remember you you said that you enjoyed that there was a there was a moment you enjoyed with her quite a bit you were telling me yeah gene hagen was great and there's the one moment where they're trying so hard to dub her voice not dub her voice but they got the they're putting the microphone and she just can't get it right and then the studio exec comes in and just trips over the wires because well we never had wires here and then he just yanks it and rips her off the bench <laughs> that still makes me laugh i've you know other parts of the movie that i see after one time i like don't laugh at as much but last night i was i cackling so hard at that just because it's so great it's just, yeah that's the thing that this movie is also just like deceptively hilarious right yeah, a lot of setup and punchlines yeah are like the whole translating from silence to talkies and oh. how hard that was i love the pearl part two where yeah. they're the, the screening it you wonder if some of those scenarios came from real life anecdotes yeah. from when they were actually making that switch in the industry i'm sure they did because this was you know not now of course like again you watch something like the artist and the transition from silent to sound most likely that's you know you're not getting any first-hand experience but the it wasn't that long ago that they made that transition i mean you know jazz singers what 1929 1928 and and this comes out in, in 52 so most yeah. people working on these sets were working on those movies and it's it's kind of amazing that in that short span of time between the jazz singer and singing in the rain, in that short span of time, the musical became a film genre, became so popular and so big and had so many tropes that you were able to make a singing in the rain that was able to examine that genre and kind of be a meta commentary on that genre in such yeah. a short span of time yeah much much the same we were talking about uh high noon the western the the, the gary cooper i don't know if you guys have seen that but with with high noon it's making a an observation on the western and and, and kind of using the tropes of the western to examine it and now of course it's become a staple of the western genre it's now just considered a classic and i think with singing in the rain too i mean now it's come to define the movie musical despite at the time being a commentary i mean the same way that you guys are you guys are right when you talk about rogers and hammerstein i you know when i was a kid when i still wanted to do musicals and still wanted to act i remember my my high school did oklahoma and i sat it out because i was just like i find their stuff very dry and very boring and not a lot to sink my teeth into and 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 of course i've I've grown up and since kind of come around and recognized how they innovated in that medium and, and, and what they did but you know it's it's easy to write their stuff off as cookie cutter musical theater bullshit because they've become such the standard right. that you don't realize how much yeah. they no they were taking some ballsy risks at the time it, I, what you're saying is true i feel like that i was gonna say i feel like that happens a lot uh with film and with 
musical theater where we look back and something's a hit, but you know, everything had to be, uh, had to be in development and had to be some level of risk at the time in the moment. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that you wouldn't have getting the band back together without. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And imagine that world. Imagine that world. That's, uh, I mean, you know, would there be a hands on a hard body if, if not for? Well, I, uh, I think there'd be a hands on a hard body, but it'd be a different kind. Uh, you know, how many? How many more? <laughs> Are you trying to make a blame it on Rio joke? Oh, that, oh my God! We have to talk about blame it on Rio. Do you guys know about blame it on Rio? No, let's blame it on Rio. Holy shit! Okay, so Stanley Donnan, who is the director of Singing in the Rain, I find him kind of perversely fascinating. So, on the town is considered a classic, right? It's in the canon. That is a Stanley Don and Gene Kelly collaboration. In the time between Singing in the Rain and On the Town, Gene Kelly makes American in Paris, which is another canonical classic. Stanley Donnan makes The Royal Wedding, a movie that has fallen into the public domain. After that, when you're talking Stanley Donnan movies, only one other sort of makes an impression, which is Charade, uh, the Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn yeah. thriller that yeah. we all remember as remade as The Truth About Charlie. But Charade, which partly has a reputation that it has. I mean, it's an interesting movie, but it also has a reputation because that's another film that fell into the public domain. Stanley Donnan's last theatrical film is a movie called Blame It on Rio. It's uh, It stars Michael Caine and Demi Moore. It is, let's see, it's Michael Caine, yes, jo- Joseph Bologna, Valerie Harper, Demi Moore. Blame It on Rio is a iconic, maybe the most iconically sleazy 80s sex comedy where Michael Caine and Michael Caine in the 80s was already an old man Michael Caine, uh, tries to fuck a bunch of teenagers in Rio. Oh, no. Yeah, and it's the 80s, so it's very sleazy, very gross, and uh, yeah, Michael Caine doing that. So think about that and the wide gap between that and uh, Singing in the Rain. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know about Blame It on Rio either. I was talking to Tom about like it's interesting that Stanley Donnan, who recently who only recently passed away, actually, I think in twenty nineteen. Yeah, a year yeah. ago. Year, February of twenty nineteen. Wild. So he, he he so he uh he he got out before the yeah. world burned down. But um but it's it's interesting. I was like, oh it's it's interesting that he never really you know, I, I don't know, you don't really hear much about him and Tom just said, Do you know what his last movie was? And I was looking at this TV movie from 99 he did called Love Letters. He's like, no, last theatrical film, blame it on Rio. So that's that's where he wound up. So I don't want to speculate or say anything one way or the other. You know, Gene Kelly went on to make Hello, Dolly. And um, Stanley Donovan made Blame It on Rio. And you can kind of go from there however you want. Well, eight, the 80s weren't great for either Gene Kelly or Stanley uh, Donovan. Xanadu's so, a, know, a, a masterpiece. Thing. Um, I mean, maybe if you've gotten hit in the head too many times. Uh, <laughs> okay, Cats Boy. Jellicles kind of jellicles do. Um, no, but it's here's a point I want to raise, and it's a minor thing, but it is kind of fun. You know, we were talking about the people who do, uh, who take movies too literally, think about things too much. I was looking at the Broadway Melody sequence, which takes it, the song is actually from a Best Picture winning film called Broadway Melody, the second movie to ever win Best Picture. Also, uh, not good. It's, uh, I, I was looking at that, you know, this elaborate dance number and all those, you know, that very theatrical, all those flats painted in the bright colors, right? Yeah. And all I could think to myself, while I'm watching this, I'm like, this looks gorgeous in Technicolor, right? It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. However, in the world of the film, he's pitching this for a black and white movie, in which case all of that would look like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I, I don't mean to do that literal thing. I know I'm suspending disbelief, but there is that part of me that's like, what this would actually look like in in the world of this film on screen would be terrible. Well, 
you know what's funny? I actually was kind of thinking that watching this movie, yeah, and um, I see, I see, well, because I actually see a direct descendant of uh, a movie that came out last year that kind of did something similar. Because in once, you know, because throughout this movie, they show like they know what black and white movies, silent movies look like, but then they do these moments. But then even in those moments, they'll like pull back and then it's they show it in mm-hmm. black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quentin, Quentin did the same thing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, and you know, it's funny when you say it, because again, it is one of those things that asks your suspension of disbelief with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because... When they're shooting that episode of Lancer, he's doing all these shots from low angles and all this stuff for the showdown sequence. Yeah, he shoots that like would a movie. never. I watched that episode of Lancer. That scene isn't in there, and they would never have taken the time to shoot it like that. The same way that you're expecting me to believe that the studio is so desperate to save the dueling cavalier that they're going to build these giant sets just for Don Lockwood to do a sequence that has nothing to do with the events of the dueling cavalier. Well, it's funny because I think. Quentin's doing the same thing that Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan were doing, which was that we're doing this for you yeah. in the audience because it's a movie in 1952, but we also know what movies in 1920, what is this, 28, 29? This is yeah, that, around then. Like, we know what movies like that then. So we're going to pretty much break reality because it's already a musical. So fucking deal with it and just show, give you the big extravaganza for 1952 but also t- tell you that it's actually going to, it'll make sense for 1929, which is what Quentin was doing, which is, yeah, I know this is a goddamn TV show from 1969, but I'm going to treat it like a movie because movies are important in this world. And they're fucking uh, Rick Dalton, this is the most important thing in his whole life right now. Right. And that, so, you know, I mean, like Quentin Tarantino's movies are about as absurd as a musical movie. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of how stylized they are. So. Well, and he, I mean, when you think about it, when you think about, to just bring it back to that for a second, and this will loop it around, when Tarantino was asked about the movies that influenced him for that movie, he mentioned Model Shop, which is one of the two movies that Jacques Demy made in America. Uh, and of course, you know, Demy is the guy who, when all those other French New Wave guys are looking at the American noir film and, and Godard is going, okay, how can, what's my version of the noir film? And, and, and Jean-Pierre Melville is going, what's my version of the noir film? Little Jacques Demy decides that he's going to just do the big lavish musicals. And, and of course he does them in his own way. You know, Young Girls of Rochefort has a serial killer subplot that is, you know, amidst all the music. Uh, you right. know, <laughs> Umbrellas of Chaborg is the set, one of the set movies ever made everyone's yeah, singing all last, the colors are bright my last sequence is so intimate yeah so you don't you don't see that in a big musical very often it's so human yeah i but it i mean that is i i said i one of my notes is that that the broadway melody sequence Jacques to me is what happens when the broadway melody sequence falls into one of those batman vats of radioactive waste and he just emerges <laughs> from that fully formed so that's that's kind of i uh you know there's one little thing i want to observe because i've watched this a million times and i feel like every time you watch it you pick up on something new mm-hmm. it really is there's a lot going on for a movie that on its surface may seem shallow uh one of the things is if you watch go back uh guys if you have the time go back and watch the broadway melody sequence again and when it's cutting between uh you know all the different montages of him singing you know on the different vaudeville stages during uh there's a lineup of patriotic girls that are all doing like a step kick with him there is a redhead to his right that is doing this full, intense Jimmy Durante style head shake that no one else is yes, doing. Yes. Oh, you saw her? Thank yes, you. I saw that last night. I yes, I I was very delighted by that last night. <laughs> all I'm all in for her. I was very happy. Yeah, yeah. I want I want her movie. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, for sure. Maybe she'll be in oh, silent. Yeah, maybe she'll maybe she'll come up in silent the untold story of Lena Lamont. But I was gonna say, speaking of Broadway Melody, there is a deleted scene from the Little Shop of Horrors movie that is a parody of the sequence where the like gangster girlfriend becomes this like other woman and there's the the really long fabric. Right. There <laughs> I don't know how there's a technical term for that. I the other thing I wanted to note is there's that moment he's you know he's walking through the soundstage with uh with her and that also gets uh reused in xanadu but it also made me think of uh it made me think of la la land which of course during the ending of la la land has that that sort of dream ballet if you will that that uh dance sequence and i think it's interesting too that you know as much as we may talk about there's an audience for that there is something kind of fun about looking at singing in the rain is now accepted as a classic right you could talk to people Mm -hmm. people in hollywood people who are movie fans and they're like of course that's a classic. It's got some magical realism to it, and that's great. But we have friends who are in LA who are working in Hollywood, and when I mention like, "Oh, I like La La Land," like I hate that movie. That's not what LA's like. That's not what it's like, you know. And getting even to the point where like you couldn't shut down a freeway like that. It's like, guys, it's it's again, it's not talking about actual. No one's going to say that the world of Singing in the Rain is exactly how it was in Hollywood, but it captures a mood, you know, and it captures. A, well, it's also funny that they 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 did shut yes. down that highway. Right, right. <laughs> That's the point, like they actually did. I think that La La Land is supposed to be a commentary on like the dream of like moving to LA and seeing this the place through rose tinted lenses. Mm-hmm. I, I saw someone put it kind of in this perfect way. The first half of La La Land is a musical about movies, and then the second half is a movie about music. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Way to put it. and it's kind of fun because you know we're talking about La La Land is is uh, about the the romance of Hollywood and looking through the rose tinted glasses, whereas Singing in the Rain, despite being a Hollywood musical, goes out of its way throughout the movie to deflate the idea of the movie star in the movie. You yeah. know, it's it's yeah. so much about how silly this all is, and I think that you know with with Lena Lamont too, it, there's there's this image of. It's about deflating the the idea of the movie star and the fact that, you know, it's, she is, her character is somebody who buys into all of the mythmaking. She buys into, mm, I mean, right. you know, the opening scene is how the crowd is freaking the fuck out for everybody getting out of the limos and getting out of her. And she buys into that. So she buys into, she's a powerful star. She buys into, she can do anything. She buys into, you know, all of that. Whereas part of the struggle that a lot of these silent film actors had when they transitioned to the sound is a lot of them had limitations they now had to recognize. Buster Keaton had a weird voice, you know, and and that was a challenge. And that's kind of, you know, to take it to the artist, that's kind of what the artist gets at is that 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 ending scene of the artist is revealing that the reason he was so concerned that he wouldn't be able to make it was the fact that he had an accent, which was true of so many, you know, that time. Right. And that uh, also in is highlighted in Sunset Boulevard as well, that she couldn't make that transition um, and is convinced that she can. But, Funny uh, enough, Sunset Boulevard also adapted into a musical. Yeah, yeah. which is, yeah. Uh, that's That's got a fascinating uh, story, but it's a different story for a different day. Um, <laughs> what was I gonna, oh, the other the other La La Land thing I noticed, because you know people talk a lot about the shots that La La Land borrowed from other musical films. But there's a scene where um, Cosmo and Don are walking through the studio it's right it's right after the part well it's weeks later um after the party where where kathy throws the pie and they're they're just having like a talk like a like a casual conversation but they're walking through a soundstage where they're filming like a bunch of different movies at once and all these sequences are happening just kind of in the background incidentally these beautiful 
lavish, colorful sequences. And that was the moment I had where I was like, those would all be in black and white, right? But the, uh, the they do the same thing in La La Land when when you know he's asking her about why she got into acting in her childhood. They're walking through through the lot, and they're they're I guess it's supposed mm-hmm. to be uh, Warner Brothers because she references the Casablanca thing. And there uh, there there's all these um, there's all these movies, movies being filmed in the background. And at one point they're asked to whisper. Um, but I, I definitely feel like it. And that's that. such um, a, that is such a classic, like the magic of Hollywood thing that so many, so many movies and TV shows when you're like, love that idea of like, you could be walking around and there's a spaceman, there's a gladiator. Right. And that's, you know, even, right. even when he was in New York, Conan O'Brien used to do that as a joke on his show all the time is walking through the offices of NBC and you'd always have nine different things going on, even though none of those things would ever actually be happening at, at 30 right. Rockefeller <laughs> Plaza. You're not going to have a guy in a gladiator. Of it. But that's such a an iconic idea of the magic of the movies, you know. One more thing that I thought was really interesting in doing my research was the gangster woman, um, you know, the, the woman who was dating the gangster. Um, her name is Ch- Sid Charisse. Oh, yeah, Sid Charisse, of course. Yeah, yeah. So she had a, like interesting relationship with Gene Kelly because she was going to be um, his love interest in American in Paris, but got pregnant and she had to drop out of the role. And so the whole um, Broadway melody sequence, they were originally envisioning, envisioning it with um, Kathy Sheldon, but because Debbie Reynolds was such an inexperienced dancer at that point, like this was her first dancing film, Gene Kelly wanted a more skilled performer so he thought of her right away and she like had a baby like a couple months before and then literally like just did this sequence with him um but she's also taller than him so when they were filming the sequences gene kelly had to be really deliberate about the choreography that they were doing together she was hunched over a lot when they're dancing together or just so you could never tell that she's taller than him um, which I thought was an interesting tidbit. Oh, and another tidbit that I thought of that we were we said we might go into is it's kind of fun, the irony of the fact that the whole thing is Kathy dubbing Lena's voice. But there are times where what is supposed to be Kathy's dubbed voice in the scene is actually the is actually actually uh Jean um Jean Higgins mm-hmm. voice. And then there's also times where it's neither of their voices for a couple of right. the ballads, even though we do hear Debbie Reynolds sing in the movie. They they decided her voice was more of a fun, upbeat voice. And for the ballads, they need to bring in a different singer. So there's all these layers to the dubbing sequences in the movie. And that, that that's kind of a, a, a fun thing to think about and get confused about when you're watching the movie. Well, it's two things. One, it's funny you mentioned uh, Sid Charisse, uh, Jeremy, because n- after Singing in the Rain in 1954, Arthur Freed would do an- produce another musical movie starring Gene Kelly, where Gene Kelly would re-team with Vincente Minnelli, who he had done American Packers, which is Brigadoon, and Sid Charisse uh, plays opposite, plays the lead opposite uh, Gene Kelly in that. So they would get a chance to appear on screen opposite one another. Of course, it is uh, widely forgotten compared to the other films. And as for the dubbing, one thing I think is great, and part of what works about Singing in the Rain, and I think part of why Singing in the Rain endures is, and Tom and I have talked about this before with other movies that are part of the problem with contemporary films when they do satire is they're condemning from the outside. You know, they are, if they are satirizing a type of movie, it's done with this idea of like, oh, those movies are so fake. And I think that what makes Singing in the Rain still charming and still work is that the perspective it comes from is openly, with its arms out, pointing to itself and its other MGM movies and going, this is all fake. This is all ridiculous. This is all silly. And because it's willing to turn that on itself and kind of 
so you you can it it works to the movie's advantage almost that they themselves are using dubbing because the point it's trying to make is not so much a burn hollywood burn we hate this but rather like a sullivan's travels-esque thing of like that eh, don't take it so seriously we're all this is all it's all goofy it's all like you know i'm not you know you know i'm really gene kelly we know what you're here for so let's just do this you know let's just have fun i saw i do see a lot of kind of once upon a time in hollywood in this movie and that's one of the things that i saw is just the way it views the hollywood thing which is that once upon a time in hollywood the whole movie is basically like all this art that we spend all this time and money on and all this effort and energy it's all disposable it's all nonsense it, but it's still important people love it it's which is you kind of get in this which is like yeah it's all silly nonsense and we're kind of just fucking going by the seat of our pants here and just also another thing gene kelly and um donald Connor very very cliff yeah you've got that you've got that buddy relationship there and then you know call call me a cab okay you're a cab it's all that meta stuff that we were talking about which is that it's all very wink wink we like we know what we're doing we're putting in musical numbers because they don't even if they don't belong here because well you're here to see a musical so we're gonna put all our effort into it um i i you know i also think um because talking about the artist before i think that's why singing in the rain one thing that makes singing in the rain last so long and why the artist has already kind of been forgotten and has been left in the dustbin of history is that singing in the rain is coming from that story of look at how cinema has changed while doing something that's actually pushing cinema forward like singing in the rain is a groundbreaking movie we've never seen anything like this before it's making things up it's doing things for the first time where the artist is well look at where his look at what cinema used to be and it's just oh I, it, this is just i, I want to counter movie. that just because i think part of the problem i mean remember saint lorraine was very oscar snubbed and kind of came to be appreciated over time the the thing with the, uh, the a lot of the thing that has hurt the artist over time was the fact that when that came out because it won best picture because it got the hype that it got there are a lot of people who have come out swinging against that and calling it oscar bait and talking about how the movies just love to talk about themselves and pat themselves in the back having not seen the film and i think that was singing in the rain again it failed to get oscar nominations it did not get the recognition it did but i think people came around because eh, there was at least at the time especially going back to the 50s a lot less of this idea of i already know what this movie is before i see it you know there is a there's a reevaluation there and i think that sure time has allowed the movie musicals that are a bit more fluff to fade away and the ones that were more meaningful endure that's why when it comes to an archivist perspective or or creating a film canon you know we're looking at the national film registry here and we're going to be going season by season through it this first year you get a gene kelly musical in it you do not get a fred astaire musical despite the fact that these guys were the two titans of dance in film there's no fred astaire in there i think the following year uh you don't have a oh you do yet the following year you get top hat but it's like what you, you, it's not as easy to point to the quintessential fred astaire movie you know is it swing time which is in the criterion collection is it top hat because i don't know can uh can uh, jeremy kyle can you guys tell me the plot of any fred astaire movie off the top of your head no because they're not memorable yeah <laughs> Like, yeah. I think I think swing time sticks out in your mind if just because when you're watching it, you're like, all right, this is fine. And then he's in blackface and you go, oh, God. But beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I don't really watch Fred Astaire movies. I just watch the dance sequences on YouTube. I'm being honest. Yeah, it's and it's I think that, you know, at the time and that's kind of 
we talked about this funny enough we talked about this when we were talking about high noon because our guest uh kenny nybart was asking us about like you know well the death of the western and i think that part of it is the musical the mjm musical was huge for a while and then of course died out and and now you know you ask most critics and you went oh, you know, would you like there to be a big movie musical again? And they'd go, of course. The same way you go, uh, what if the Western, somebody made a Western and they go, oh my God, great, we need this because I'm just so tired of these superhero movies. And it's like, okay, there are a lot of them, but in 20, 30 years, the, the, the forgettable ones will fall away and some of them will be part of the canon. The same way that right. there are so many musicals, movie musicals, that no human being will probably ever want to watch again. No one's ever going to tell you you got to watch West Point Story, you know, or or on with the show. Like, they're not going to ask for these. That's kind of the point I was kind of making is that over time is what allows you to tell if a movie is kind of good or not. And that Singing in the Rain was Oscar snubbed, but 70 years later, we're still talking about it. And it's still a great movie to watch where the artist, again, this isn't talking from a personal experience of if it's good or not. Or if people put a target on its back so much as it won the Oscar, got a lot of eyes on it, and what is this, eight years after it won? People are just like, okay, it's it's there. Nobody really talks about it anymore because time is what tells if a movie's good. We, 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 we talk, again, what beat High Noon and didn't went beat this movie that wasn't even nominated at the best picture uh, for Best Picture this year? The goddamn clown movie. Yeah, but I also but I'm saying I think that there's also an element of the way that movies are consumed in the way that we talk about movies. Uh, There's also an element of, I think, you know, we and this is this is for another episode, another conversation. But the the way that the public and the movie going public views the Oscars has certainly shifted in the last 50 plus years, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it is it is a difference how people consume Hollywood movies and honestly if you look at how the cinema industry has changed just the way that films are distributed and um and taken in by the public is so different now um there it it is a much cheaper experience and you know what's interesting and not to not to because I actually do enjoy superhero movies a lot but what what you were saying I, I found interesting because if you look at the cinematic universes I do wonder how many it's it's going to be harder for some of those to fall into obscurity and fall into the background because every single movie exists in the same universe. If you look at the MCU, I the I so I I wonder if I, the comparison is I don't know. That was that was a thought that popped into my head. I was like, I think I on think that particular topic, I think you're going to end up, you know, in terms of its its place in the canon. I think it's going to end up being something sort of like the James Bond franchise. Yeah, where, wherein. Yeah. If you watch a random James Bond film, you may end up coming across a scene where Roger Moore is looking at his dead wife's grave. And that doesn't mean that you really have to watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But if you saw it the same way that while you're right that the MCU is something where it's, you know, one cohesive story. The truth is, if if in 30 years, you know, somehow uh, any of us are able to afford to have families and our our kids or grandkids are like, let's watch Black Panther. At most, they'll maybe go, why does that guy have a metal arm at the end? And it's like, don't worry about it. Just it was from another movie. We we don't need to get into it. Talking about the way that the Oscars uh, are received now compared to, I would say, at least from my end as, as an amateur, you know, in your industry. I think, you know, here out in suburban Long Island, like, you know, we can go to the theater and see musicals, but most people, you know, go to one or two a year, maybe. And when something wins the Tony Award, it 
is able to break in and, and get the reaction from people here, you know, your average person who goes, oh, I, I, I never heard of this The Band's Visit or Hades Town, but nah, I guess I got to go see it because it won the award. Whereas now it kind of feels like there's a response when a movie wins Best Picture, especially, you know, especially this past year with Parasite, but when a movie wins Best Picture, that there's a lot of people coming out and kind of responding to it going by, Oh, this won the Oscar? I never even heard of it. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because I do think that to an extent it's true, but a lot of tourists don't care about the Tonys and, and Broadway survives on tourists. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, whether or not a musical wins the Tony has little to do with its success. Wicked, for example, is one of the, the longest running contemporary shows and, and sits, you know, it has a, I don't, I haven't, don't have a memorized, but it has a respectable place on the all time list of longest running shows. It's a musical that did not, did very poorly at the Tonys. And uh, then you look at Avenue Q, which, uh, you know, moved to New World Stages, which is an off Broadway venue and then closed. Um, won the tone won the Tony for Best Musical that year. Wicked is the fifth longest running Broadway yes. show. In top five. Um and uh and I think uh with with Broadway it has less to do with the awards in terms of what what will get people there and more about like how they is it a premise that like well they, they always say that like middle aged women are the are the t- the ticket for, for Broadway. So you have to come up with a premise that you can sell to that demographic. Um, but the, uh, it, it does have an effect. Like if, if like Ben's visit wouldn't have run as long as it did, if it hadn't won the Tony, but I still, it didn't recoup, did it? I don't, I think it's still, if, if you look fiscally at, at, I'm pretty sure it would still be considered fiscally a flop in, in that it didn't recoup its investments because a lot of, most Broadway shows flop from a fiscal perspective. Like it's, it's actually kind of an absurd industry to be in because they're almost all, financial failures the shows that do endure often have little to do with whether or not they win the tony but it does play a part in how many more months it gets to run it did recoup oh it did recoup okay but, so but it closed shortly but barely after. it like recouped and then closed and whereas it, it, more, it has more to do with like mean girls for example if if it weren't for covid i have no idea what's going to happen because of covid but if if we weren't considering the pandemic i feel like mean girls would have just kept running and running, even though it didn't get really any attention or love at the Tonys. I do really want to thank you guys for for coming on. I I knew you were the the guys I wanted for this movie, and I I mean this sincerely. It turned out even better than I could have imagined. Uh, you guys really came informed, and I'm I'm so glad you came on. And I hope that in future seasons of the show we can we can have you back because this was yeah, this, this, this was, was an really absolute great. pleasure, guys. For uh for a topic i'm not the 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 expert on it was good having you guys to really make this episode a really interesting one get some good stuff out there and um yeah like i said uh like mike said i'm uh, i hope we can get you guys on other stuff maybe maybe stuff that's uh, a little more outside of your purview uh yeah, yeah no, for sure thank you so much for having us thanks guys thanks so much and, and please stay safe Seriously, stay. you too right, thank you again so, Singing in the Rain obviously has you know, a little special place in, in my heart. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, um, I do have some background in musical theater, especially at a young age. Uh, pretty much spent the majority of my life thinking that I was going to be an actor. And so musicals particularly were my way to transition to um, stage theater and, and film in, in general. So, um, watching the this musical film... Um, again, and being able to hear Jeremy and Kyle talk about it uh, really was a treat.
Oh, I did not. I did not think about that. Kyle, let's let's run this down. I don't even care if this stays in the episode. Let's run this down. What were your high school musicals? I want to know this. Well, let's let's uh, go back and forth. What were your what were your? So you got to remember. Uh, I mean, shout out Utica Academy for International Studies because I did not have a traditional high school experience. If you specifically want, I'm God, I'm trying to remember. I mean, if you want musicals that I did like younger, I, I'm like I've done Grease. I did the 25th annual Putnam. No, 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 no. You don't get to just no, say the show. I mean, no, no. I'm saying you don't get to just list the show. I want the role, Kyle. I want to know what oh, you, you did the in these shows. I okay, got it, got it, got it. So, um, I, so keep in mind, most of my uh, early experience was from an elementary school or i'm sorry i was in elementary school it was a summer stock theater program shout out to roper i did that for about like three years so let's see i was leaf coney bear in um 25th annual putnam county spelling bee which low-key was probably my favorite role of the three years that i did it i, I was even was... Danny, I, I was danny zuko in greece at one point too so wait, I, whoa, 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 whoa. pump the brakes pump the brakes. yeah you right danny yeah. zuko uh, that yes, I think that that oh, was a that's role. Crazy. Yeah, that was that was a role. I think that like if they had any other person who was like six foot, I probably would have lost out too. So I just got very very lucky. It was like, well, shit. He's, at least he's got the talent. So let, let's just throw him in there. Um. So so yeah, should not have gotten that, but I'm I'm grateful I did. But leave oh, Cody Bear. Tell me more. Tell me more. What do you? What do you? What more do you want? I mean, no, that's my, a song from Greece. Kyle. No, no, I'm aware it's the song. <laughs> With all of that being said, folks, what movies would you pick to add to the film registry that isn't already there? So I was thinking about it, and this was tough. I had a number of options because there are, I mean, look, in this case, we're talking about the quintessential movie musical. So I could really look at any movie musical that isn't in the registry and say it should go in. But I was trying to think more specifically. I was thinking initially about pitching Hello, Dolly, the which uh, the Barbara Streisand musical film that Gene Kelly directed, knowing that both of them are such angry, bitter perfectionists. I would love to know what that set was like. But then I started thinking about it, and there's more to Singing in the Rain than just being a movie musical, because part of it is, as uh, Jeremy kind of pointed out in our discussion, it's a jukebox musical. You know, it's using songs that people already knew in a, in a new way, uh, you know, to, to tell this story. And then, uh, you know, so that's kind of an angle. But then in addition to that, the way that it is a period piece, and it uses, uh, in a lot of cases, more contemporary music to tell a story set in the past. Uh, Kyle, I'm sure you know where this is going going already but so then i was thinking about this and and what should go in and then i thought about the fact that one of the other movies that was nominated for best picture that year instead of singing in the rain was john houston's biopic about toulouse lautrec moulin rouge and that made it obvious to me that the one thing i got a pitch to go into the national film registry from the year 2001 a u.s australia co-production because co-productions are allowed is is moulin rouge the 2001 uh, Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman musical. I mean, it was a a huge film. It contributed undeniably to the revival of the musical as a movie genre. Uh, prior to that, I mean, think just, you know, in 1999, the musicals you got are South Park and I think 2000's Dancer in the Dark. So, you know, you don't really have a lot, but, but Moulin Rouge really brought that to the forefront. Uh, the first musical nominated for Best Picture since Beauty and the Beast, it was a huge hit and much like singing in the rain it took a genre in in this case Moulin Rouge built off of the Bollywood film in a lot of ways Baz Luhrmann said he's very influenced by that and used kind of the ideas of, the, of both the Bollywood film and the Hollywood musical and combined them obviously invoking diamonds or a girl's best friend uh, at one point for Cole Kidman combining them into 
this film that when you saw it felt like nothing you'd ever seen before and took songs that you thought you knew in the same way that most people probably thought they knew singing in the rain before this from from many other films took songs you thought you knew like your song and took them in, in a completely different direction made it did something very different that now they're inextricably linked so i think undeniably uh moulin rouge should be in the national film registry so for me i did go a little um outside of the I'm usually a little more straightforward with my picks. I went a little outside the box with this one. And I thought I wanted to go for something that had that same sense of we're trying to push cinema forward. We're trying to do new things. We're going to bring the musical, the sensibilities of a musical, but to a different sort of story. Do a similar meta kind of thing without ever like the way Singing in the Rain never actually looks in the camera and says, hey, we're in a movie, but has that same sense of yeah, we all know this is a movie, like, we're having fun here. That's also as bright and colorful that may not have been as appreciated when it came out, but has, as the years gone on, been a lot more, has seen a lot more love. I think my pick has to be, it is now eligible, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. That movie is, in all senses of the word, a musical. But instead of musical numbers, there are fight scenes. And it's just as colorful and wild and new and pushing cinema forward. It, there's that meta sensibility where it's really playing with the form and the structure. It's bringing comic book sensibilities the way Singing in the Rain was bringing um, Broadway musicals to the screen and just all that stuff. It's got a great love story in there similar to Singing in the Rain that's more fitting for the modern times than Singing in the Rain's. Uh, is for now, you know, Singing in the Rains was good for the 52. And really, I just think the way Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan staged and framed those dance numbers and actually just, you know, Gene Kelly executing those song and dance numbers is very similar to what Edgar Wright and that team of uh, fight choreographers and uh, his DP Bill Pope did with Scott Pilgrim of really just going for broke, doing something we'd never seen before pushing cinema forward in a way yeah i just uh i feel like if you asked edgar wright if singing in the rain was in his mind when he was making scott pilgrim versus the world he would say absolutely i mentioned edgar wright in the body of the episode with kyle and jeremy that you know edgar wright's one of the few big mainstream filmmakers today where he is as aware of the 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 music as he is the image and how those two things can coincide and make their movie even better and have a flow to it that honestly m- most musicals don't have even compared to his stuff that aren't actually musicals i think if there's anybody that is continuing to bring that sort of gene kelly inspired thing going in america and you know east uh, the western world it's got to be uh, Edgar Wright, and I think what his masterpiece is is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Jeremy Swanton and Kyle Reed Haas for joining us. You can find their work on Facebook and YouTube at Haas and Swanton, and check out their show Contact High at contacthighmusical.com. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know someone who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone who you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.